Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey folks, as y'all are well aware of, one of our favorite aspects to our project is the different perspectives on our show and the blog, and today is no exception. We're going to revisit borders and immigration from someone who has a very unique perspective. And whenever I say unique, I mean unique to the show. Today, Sheriff David Hathaway joins us to speak about this topic and how he understands his response as a sheriff and more importantly, as a Christian. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Craig. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I was really excited when you, you accepted my invite to come on because you reached out to us after we released our episode I did with Josh Allen on immigration. He wrote for a blog about it. And then you told me, you know, as a sheriff in Arizona that you refuse offers from your governor to send National Guard troops to help with uh, immigration. And you mentioned in the email, too, that you, you do also agree that it's very unchristian to treat these folks this way. So we'll get into that in a second. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a little background on yourself. Whatever you want us to know about you, and then we'll get into it. I'm a you know Christian father and husband. I have nine children, and me and my wife have been married um, 38 years. I'm part of a five-generation ranching family in Arizona. Uh, my family has lived in this area since before Arizona was a state. Since the 1800s, Arizona became a state in uh, 1912. I know it's kind of like a paradox or an oxymoron or seemingly hypocritical for me to be a voluntarist, anarchist, and also an elected sheriff. We could get into that later, my reasons for doing that. I don't think that politics is the answer. Um, if your listeners want to read more about me, I've written a lot of articles for lewrockwell.com and for the Libertarian Institute if people want to read some of those things. But that's basically it. My position is right on the border, on the Mexican border. So as you've mentioned, I've had clashes with the governor who has wanted to send uh, soldiers, National Guard troops to my county, and I have refused uh, his offer to do that. Um, as the chief law enforcement officer of the county, the sheriff would have to agree to a decision like that. We would have to sponsor those troops. And other counties, unfortunately, have accepted the offer, and I have uh, turned that down. But anyway, as far as like a brief introduction, that's uh, that's pretty much it for me. Great. Yeah, and I've really been excited about talking about this because, like I said in the, in the intro, you've you got a very unique perspective on this. And you mentioned Libertarian Institute. I guess that means you're familiar with Scott Horton. I, as a matter of fact, I, I wrote a book about immigration and Scott Horton did the forward for my book. And you probably know Will Grigg. He's passed away, but he also did a blurb uh, for that book. And if you want a copy of that, I can send it to you. That book was a very unique perspective. It's it's kind of trying to understand why certain anarchists, certain libertarians are willing to use force, coercion, tax-funded force to patrol borders or use soldiers or border patrol or things like that. It seemed kind of to me like illogical that you would be an, an, an anarchist in all other areas except in that one area. And particularly, you know, I really love Austrian economics, but particularly some Austrian economists have come down in favor of enforced national borders while we're in the nation state phase, as they would say, uh, just saying that, you know, we need that. We need tax funded, you know, border enforcers. That was not logical to me. So I wrote a book. And like I said, Scott Horton did a really nice long introduction for that book that basically says that's not correct libertarian thinking. We shouldn't have tax funded coercive structures in any parts of our life if we want to be a, a truly voluntarist society. So did you ever, you mentioned, uh, I love that by the way, but did you uh, ever get the opportunity to meet Will Grigg? Because I uh, became familiar with him later on and I had, I don't know if you know who Benji Graves is, but he was a Will Grigg's pastor in, in Idaho. And I had Benji Graves on after I heard him on the Scott Horton show and we talked about Will Grigg a lot, I guess. Apparently, the guy was well-liked among a lot of people. He was fantastic. He was a Christian and just 
totally 100% principled anarchist. That's why he came back against the state-funded border enforcement, as as did I. I never met him, met him in person, but we corresponded through the mail and email and you know online platforms and sent things back and forth to each other. I never laid eyes on him in person, but I consider him a real good friend. We were close, talked on the phone, and and corresponded with each other. I think the first time I heard his name because I was. I had been involved with the John Birch Society, and he had some kind of conflict with them. He was part of it at one time, and he, as Benji Graves told me, he said he was just way too principled. And I, and I could see that because when I was with the John Birch, it seemed, seemed very status to me. But the more I started learning and understanding anarchy, and just got away from that myself. So let's go ahead and start with immigration here. And um, I, I want to start with this. What kind of uh, response are you getting from folks that live there in your county when they understand that you refuse these trips? Like you said, other counties have, have accepted the offer from the governor. Are you getting any kind of pushback or is it? Yeah, surprisingly, I, I, I hate to say this, but surprisingly, the conservative churches, I get along with them really well in every other area. But for some reason in this area, and, and I think kind of all across the U.S., they have adopted this position that we need to send troops to the border and we need to go knock heads on the border and, and you know, shoot people, lock them up, whatever we need to do, take their property away from them. And unfortunately, uh, on, on everything else, like I've gone and talked to these groups. They have a group called the Constitutional Conservatives of Southern Arizona. I've gone and talked to them. Um, you know, they applaud, you know, standing ovations on every other issue except for that. And they just think on that issue, it's something they associate with Trump. And Trump has kind of turned into their messiah for some reason. And they just think we need to be very hostile about the border. What's really weird, Craig, if you rewind like 25 years and you look at Ray, like another Republican president, um, he had the opposite attitude. He told Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, this idea of uh, having walls and having a militarized border, that this isn't right. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Um, and he realized that that wasn't, that didn't promote free enterprise or interaction between societies, you know, to have tanks and razor wire and guys with machine guns and uniforms patrolling borders. And I have, I've warned the people here, like, for example, several years ago, they started doing what they call southbound inspections. This is a brand new thing. And now it's full time where they search you as you're leaving the country. The U.S. officials, not the Mexican officials, U.S. officials search your car and they'll take your money on the way out of the country. So walls and, and militarized borders not only are an attempt to keep people out, but they keep you in too if you're trying to leave or become an expat and move to another country. So surprisingly, the pushback has been, in my case, pastors and members of kind of conservative congregations. And in other aspects of life, I would associate with those people, you know, kind of across the board on the other thing, like personal freedom, all the COVID restrictions that I disagree with and I fought against with, fought against, you know, just pushing for people's individual liberty and, you know, and as from the Christian pers perspective, love your neighbor as yourself, you know, adopting that as our principle for action. But for some reason on, on, on that one area, I've had pushback from specifically conservative Christians. It's really strange to me how... <laughs> Because where I grew up, I grew up in West Texas, in a little town called Grape Creek, right south out of San Angelo. And just that, that area itself and our family was very conservative for the most part. And I can still talk to some of them and even friends and family of, that come from the folks like you were just talking about. It seems to me like they're talking out both sides of their mouth when they talk about, well, they'll say one thing about Jesus, and they'll talk about Jesus in one, one breath. And then the vitriol and the anger towards somebody that's coming across the border trying to better their life. I don't see how they can't see the conflict and what's going on there. Because Jesus was very specific. And we're pretty hard on the church on the show but on that aspect because he was very specific and he was very blunt about it. He said, love your neighbor and your enemy. I saw somebody post the other day. It was on Facebook. They were talking about, and it was a Trump post. They're still holding on this Trump hope, I guess, but... Something about borders, and do you, do you agree if, if what, with Trump on? And I'm paraphrasing about stopping all these people at the border. And I just commented. I said, you know, I said no. I said Jesus was very clear. He said, love your neighbor, and that literally means everybody. Yeah, you know, and pray for your enemies and love your enemies. Um, you know, it's funny how 
you know, the Sermon on the Mount covers so many things, you know, uh, it, it, it covers that very specifically. There's other examples in the Bible about the stranger and the sojourner and the parable of the Good Samaritan, where it's, the purpose of that parable is to show that people that are culturally different, ethnically different, if they're from a different nationality, how that, that person is still your neighbor, how, you know, the rabbi and the Jews went past the the injured person, but then the Samaritan of a different culture that was considered a contrasting culture to the to the uh, J- Jewish culture actually helped this person. And which one was being a good neighbor? It's just so clear there. It even uses the example, kind of a reductio ad absurdum of like a person who's culturally different from you. In case anybody has doubts on that, it, it uses that example, you know, the Samaritan, uh, just, just to kind of show in that society, they, those were looked down on as kind of different people, a different culture than us. And I don't think it can be any clearer on that. But and what's funny is, Craig, is they'll only do a mad one-line attack to me on that subject, but I'll want to discuss it with them. I'll say, well, let's discuss this from a Christian perspective, like what should our focus be on? And even from a freedom perspective or a perspective of the governments too involved in our lives, let's just discuss this logically. And I can never get one of those people to discuss it. They'll just be very angry with me and they'll shut off the conversation because it's maybe a bad habit of mine, but I like having political discussions like, okay, Maybe I'm missing something here. You tell me what I'm missing. And I can't get anybody anybody opposed to me that's kind of more the conservative Christian perspective. I can't get them to go down that rabbit hole and say, let's have a friendly conversation. What, what are your areas of concern? Let's talk about this from a Christian perspective. We're not supposed to have two masters, and we're not supposed to serve the principalities and powers of this earth, you know, like uh, we're supposed to have God as our as our one true master. And yet they shift that focus selectively through a, a misinterpretation of Romans chapter 13, um, where they will just say, well, as an individual Christian, I couldn't do this. I couldn't beat somebody over the head or drop a bomb on somebody or disembowel them or butcher them. But if it's somehow ordained by the government, by Donald Trump or Biden or somebody like that, then it's okay to do things that an individual Christian can't do. Then you can join the army and kill people. As an individual Christian, you couldn't. But if it's blessed through some Romans 13 interpretation, uh, a misinterpretation of what the government can do, then it's somehow okay. It's these Romans 13 folks who kind of gone silent lately after the, what we've yeah. seen go down in, in Afghanistan and after Biden getting elected too. Because yeah. I said, now, if you're going to use a Romans 13 and misinterpret it, are you okay with the Taliban taking over in, in Afghanistan again? Did God ordain them as, as the rightful masters of that country? Yeah. And, and with Hitler, Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and all that, like they will go styling on that too. If you say that any earthly authority is ordained by God. And of course, what Romans 13 really means is all true authority, the true authority on earth is ordained by God. But obviously there's authority that's not legitimate. If you and me were stranded on an island, Craig, and it's like, okay, this is our island kingdom. And all of a sudden I start whacking you over the head and tell you I'm going to sit here in a hammock and you have to go pick coconuts for you and me to both eat. It's like, okay, I'm the authority because I've proclaimed myself to be the authority. And if I can get you to submit to that, it doesn't mean that that's ordained by God, you know? Exactly. And I, and you said that people won't have this conversation with you because when you're talking about this stuff, I've been called radical before in my beliefs, you know, but if you look at the early church and, and Jesus said they were called radical, you know, because in their thinking, you know, and I think the, the church needs to get back to being radical, you know, and get back to this radical type of thinking and, and loving your neighbor. It's strange to me that, that it's, a, it's a radical thought, you know, it's a radical thought to, to take his word seriously. Yeah. You, you know, the early church, if you look at the first three centuries, three and a half centuries up to the time of Tiberius and Constantine, they wouldn't even think of joining, joining the army or be participating in a military activity. But around the time of uh, Tiberius, he proclaimed Rome to be a Christian empire. And then before that, before they would go to battle or do military exercises, they would do ritual sacrifices to pagan gods. And now they just proclaimed that the whole empire was now Christian and they would continue those same rituals. But now uh, they were praying to 
Jesus Christ, or they were doing it under the umbrella of a Christian nation. And now all of a sudden, that made anything the military does be legitimate from a Christian perspective. And around the fourth century, Tiberius, and then, you know, with Constantine, it became where the state legitimized. Uh, where, where Christianity somehow accepted that they can become under the umbrella of the state. But like you said, I, I'm fascinated at looking at the practices of, of the early church, read their writings, what they focused on. And it was nothing to do with the state, you know, for at least the first three centuries. And then it just radically changed. And then it got worse over the time, over times with the crusades and all these things that were supposedly Christian or God-inspired uh, military endeavors, you know, which was not that way in the early church. Right. They would go so far as to, they wouldn't even allow you to be in the church if you had any kind of uh, connection to government or, or to the state, especially if it was going to cause somebody some harm. Hey folks, Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in-depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. As an anarchist or voluntarist, what I've studied on the early church, trying to understand that philosophy, the anarchist philosophy, and still learning along the way, once I started really kind of getting into the early church and understand that first 300 years of how they responded to the Roman Empire, it's really solidified my my view as an anarchist or a voluntarist, you know, because, and I say this all the time, I said, when you get back to that old time religion, and I'm not talking about the 50s and 60s, I'm talking about the first 300 centuries or 300 years of, of Christianity. Once they got involved with Constantine, because he offered some some sort of protection, because they were being persecuted constantly. If you read folks like Polycarp, right before they murdered him, he said, we were taught to honor the government as long as they do us no harm. And to me, he was being a Stark right before they killed him. I don't know if you know his story, but they tried to, you know, burn him alive and the, the fire didn't consume him and they ended up just stabbing him to death. But to me, that was a final jab before he, because he knew they were going to murder him. But I can't think of anything that they do that doesn't harm somebody in some fashion somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, the reason we pay taxes is not because it's right and just what the government's doing. is just as Christians, we want to live peaceably with all men. You know, and so if somebody's coercing you to do something, uh, if government's coercing you to do something, you know, you can have try to have peaceful resistance. You can opt out out if it's possible. You can opt out, take your kids out of public school, you know, and then do homeschool like like we've done with our nine children. Um, but you know, the reason we pay taxes is not because it's legitimate of what the government's doing. It's just to live peaceably with all men. And as a matter of fact, one of the articles I wrote for LouRockwell.com a few years ago was the, you know, the give unto Caesar passage, you know, where, where, you know, Jesus, he would often answer a question with another question, require the person to think. And then, so what he really requires you to do is to think, what is Caesar? And the philosopher uh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, that the government owns nothing. Everything He said that everything the government owns is stolen. Whatever the governor owns is stolen or whatever they possess is stolen. So stolen property is not legitimately yours. Like if you stole my car, you may possess it. But, you know, if you adjudicated that, I would still be the rightful owner of that. So Nietzsche said anything the government possesses is stolen. So if you look at what Jesus was saying, he was requiring the people that ask him, you know, because they were trying. I mean, the scriptures say they were trying to trap him, you know. Uh, he requires them to think through yourself like, uh, like, okay, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So then you have that, that mental exercise, what is Caesar's? Well, like I said, Nietzsche said everything that the government has is stolen. So really, if they took it by coercion, it's not theirs. They don't own anything. But he doesn't come out and say, you know, you don't have a rightful claim on on anybody's property. But, you know, the reason that we, we pay taxes is really pretty much just to not harm the faith of somebody who's weak in the faith so they could think that you're 
know, you're doing something inappropriate. We don't do it because we believe in what the government's doing is just to kind of avoid problems, to avoid misperception of Christian intentions that we're hostile to other people when we're really trying to be friendly to other people, our neighbors and our enemies. Right. And it's so funny you said that what Jesus would do when he would ask other when he would ask a question himself, it's kind of like what you were talking about when folks were giving you pushback about the immigration stuff. You're asking them questions. And I've, I've talked about this a couple of times this weekend with some folks on, on, on the show, recording some episodes and just in passing conversation, because when trying to get people to understand what we're talking about, you start asking them questions because of what Jesus was doing when he would in turn ask them a question. They didn't have a response. They didn't have a rebuttal. Because so, you knew, then you knew he had their head, had them spinning in their head trying to figure out how to answer this. And all the time they would just turn around and walk away because there was no answer to it. But he got them thinking. And I think that's how we change a lot of what's going on. You get them thinking like these people you're talking to in these churches about immigration. At that moment, you might not have convinced them, but you got them thinking about it at least. And it takes a minute for some of that to kind of, that seed to, to kind of sprout into a tree. And then, you know, then they, they're going to gain more knowledge that way. And you, and you know a thing, Craig, about the immigration thing, it's kind of always been a red herring issue to get people fixated on foreigners, on something outside the U.S. Like you've never really been allowed to, to or encouraged to openly criticize the regime that's trying to control you in your life. But say Hitler could fixate on Poland. He could say the Polish people are dangerous and they're a danger to the fatherland. We need to invade Poland. Of course, it wasn't true, but you can always fixate on a foreigner. The government allows you to do that. They don't want you to complain about the actual tyranny, the, the freedom they're taking away from you in your own country. So examples in my lifetime, I'm 62 years old. I mean, people were allowed to hate the Vietnamese. The Vietnamese is the scary foreign evil entity, hate Koreans, uh, hate Germans, hate Japanese, you know, and where you'd have during World War I and World War II, where there were like uh, German language newspapers in the U.S. that were shut down and people were, were imprisoned that were of German descent and the same with Japanese descent. And like right now, you can hate people from Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. That's acceptable. You can have public discourse on that. You can complain about that on Facebook. But you see what that is? That's a red herring. It's kind of a safety relief valve for the government because the government that's oppressing you the government that's oppressing Craig and oppressing David, they don't want us to notice and talk about their oppression of us. They're taking freedoms of us. So it's always kind of a safe, easy thing to say, let's go hate those people in Iran or Vietnam or Japan or Germany, or Hitler can say the people in Poland or Stalin can say the kulaks, you know, like these are the people that some sort of foreign group or eth ethnically different group, you're allowed to hate them. And and it's a, like a little secret. It's like the the state entity that's crawling, controlling you does not you want you to complain about the mask or the vaccine passports and things like that. Um, and they make that taboo and they will like deplatform you if you do that. But it's okay to have squabbles, left, right squabbles about foreigners, about Mexicans, Guatemalans coming across the southwest border, or you can complain complain about they're all inhuman savages, you know, that, that live in Afghanistan or, you know, Iraq. And it's been going on throughout history, like the Romans um, described the Germanic people as barbarians and savages. You know, they wrote treatises about them and about anybody else they wanted to in invade. And those that mythology stays till today, till this day. People still think that ancient Germans were barbarians, and they weren't, but it was all based on a little book wrote, written by a Roman historian named Tacitus who had never visited Germany, but he wrote about how they eat with their hands and how they're savages and they're illiterate. And now you see that in movies. You'll still see that in movies and book and in fiction works to this day, that the German people were crude barbaric people and the Romans came in and invaded and civilized them. But it's always been a tactic where you can complain about the foreigner and it takes the focus off of the oppression that you're enduring in your own country. Very, it sounds very similar to what we see the United States government doing. And they, they do a great job of demonizing other people to keep the focus off of them and not to get too far off the subject. There's one thing whenever Ron Paul would talk back in the day that I, I'd never really ever latch on to Ron Paul like a lot of uh, anarchists did. It, it took me a minute to warm up to him because I thought he was just un unpatriotic. And then when I got away from all that kind of thinking, 
looking back on stuff he said now, it really made a lot of sense. But he always talked about blowback, and he talked about why some of these folks in these other countries hate the United States so bad because we've been occupying their their land for years and dropping bombs on their children and and, and wives and churches and and weddings and school buses. You know that people don't ever take that into account. Just how how evil our very own government has been acted over the past 75 years you know or, or even longer than that hey folks craig here again as you know this project is completely self-funded by me and all profits go straight to charities here in memphis if you have a blog a podcast or a product that you would like to advertise on the bad roman podcast the first 15 folks to sign up for four ad spots with us will get a fifth spot for free visit the slash ads I'm so happy how this project has grown and thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the conversation. So let me ask you this and then we'll kind of, we'll kind of switch gears a little bit. So you, how did, how did the governor respond to you whenever you refused national guard troops first? How let's, let's start there. You know, I, I don't know if our governor, uh, Ducey and governor Abbott in Texas, if they have aspirations to run for president, but they're trying to kind of repl- replicate the Trump formula. So what they did is they assumed that all the sheriffs on the border would be happy with the idea of militarizing the border, having troops on the border. So the governor of the state had the major general who was in charge of the National Guard for Arizona call me and say, do you want National Guard troops in your county? Because there's there's a law called the Posse Comitatus Law in the U.S. that says the military cannot function as a police force in the U.S., um, but they can come in support of, of an agency. So they needed me to sponsor this, and they just assumed I would say yes, the more the better, send troops to the border. And I told them, no, look, this is a negative image from our border. Uh, it hurts our shopping districts and whatnot. It hurts tourism from bigger cities like Tucson and Phoenix to have not only razor wire on the fence, which the National Guard has put on during the Trump administration, but to send military vehicles and troops and guys in uniforms and machine guns along the border. That That's like making an East Berlin type militarized border. And I said, I do, do not want that. And as the chief law enforcement officer, officer of the county, I'm rejecting your offer. Now, there were other sheriffs. There were two other sheriffs on on border counties in Arizona. There's four border counties in Arizona that actually touch Mexico. Two of them said yes. Um, And it was kind of a politically expedient thing to do because their voter base likes the idea of a militarized border. So the governor was surprised that I said no to that. And and I did say no, and they did not come here. And, And I gave my reasons. And then uh, both Governor Abbott in Texas and Governor Ducey in Arizona then after that did this crazy thing where they sent out a plea to all 48 lower contiguous states of the U.S. telling them send law enforcement officers, uh, deputy sheriffs, state police, and send your National Guard from your states to the border in Arizona. So at at this point, 10 states have responded that they will send sheriff's deputies like from uh, Florida and from Iowa and various places to the border. And I, I'm going to refuse for those people. And, and they've also said that they will send their National Guard to the borders as well. Now, as the chief law enforcement officer, I can say no. And those law enforcement officers from other states can't function here unless I deputize them because they don't have authority in the state of Arizona. They'd be coming here with different uniforms, different vehicles, different frequencies. They don't know the terrain. They don't know who's who. And they could wind up having friendly fire type incidents, shooting at other people, you know. Uh, so, it's, it's an ongoing battle right now. And Craig, I can't tell you how that's going to turn out. I've kind of won the first chapter of that, but I'm just a small nobody in this whole thing. You know, if I'm dealing with governors and, you know, and National Guard and military troops and things like that. But at this point, I've, I've prevailed in this county on that issue because I think from the Christian perspective, it doesn't make sense. And it also doesn't make sense, even if you flash back to the Reagan perspective of, militarized borders between the Soviet Union and, you know, um, Western, uh, Western Europe, you know, the, the Iron Curtain that they called it. And they eventually tore down the Berlin Wall at, at Reagan's request. He told Gorbachev, he told Mikhail Gorbachev, look, you say that you're emerging from a totalitarian government into freedom. You're going to be a free country with free markets. Well, this symbolism of this wall isn't doing it. You need to reunite the two Germanys, tear down this wall. And that's ultimately what happened. So um, I've prevailed at this point, but 
I don't know if there's some way the governor can overrule me or if they can swear out a warrant saying that I'm, I don't know, malfeasance of office, um, you know, something to try to force me to accept those people coming to my border community. And I have, I have the biggest ports of entry in Arizona with Mexico in my county. Um, but we also have the biggest border patrol station in the country in my county and the third biggest in my county. So there's lots of federal officers here. And it's, I think it's this political agenda that some people have that I don't know if they're trying to go in Trump's footsteps of militarizing the border. And they think if they run for president in 2024, that'll, that'll give them a leg up. I'm, I'm not sure, but it's not needed. I have a very peaceful county here. Our crime statistics are lower than the big cities in Arizona, lower than Tucson and Phoenix. Uh, you know, very, very calm, family-oriented community here on the border. We don't need it. And, and yet they're trying to push it on me, I think, for political purposes. Well, regardless of how it ends up in the end, I really appreciate you standing on some some principle because we need more of that in this, especially, you know, on the Christian side of it. I don't know if you take more of a stance on this because of your, your understanding of, of the teachings of Jesus or more as an, a voluntarist or, or what, or maybe both of them take a part in it as well. But I really appreciate you, you know, having some principles and standing on them. And and just to tell you about, I've only been in office for eight months. And just to talk about the Christian perspective, I wanted a campaign slogan. You know how people will have campaign slogans, little catchy, meaningless phrases or something like that. Build stronger for the future or whatever nonsense like that. I thought I want something as close as possible to the golden rule, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself. So I put on my campaign vehicles and all my posters. I put in English a helpful neighbor, and in Spanish, un vecino respetuoso, which is that idea of a friendly neighbor, a neighbor who's trying to be neighborly, including our neighbors to the south in, in Mexico. And as a matter of fact, of all the interviews I did leading up to the uh, election, I campaigned for a year and a half. I never articulated any kind of a crisis that the government needs to solve because kind of the formula for all government action and the way most sheriffs campaign is the world is a scary place and there's a crisis out there and you need me to save you from this crisis, whether we need more DU checkpoints, we need more troops on the border, we need a bigger drug war, you know, something where they will articulate a crisis. I did the opposite of that, and I didn't know if it would work. I never said I want to run anybody's life. I have no desire to run anybody's life. But my campaign was all about being neighborly, about helping our neighbors. And it worked for me. I, I won in a landslide. I didn't know if it work, would work, but ultimately it did have that Christian focus. My slogan was as close as I could, down, getting it down to three words of having the golden rule uh, as my campaign slogan. Yeah, listening to your conversation with Tom Woods, I want to touch on something you said in that as well towards the end of this one. But when you mentioned that you won, you had like four times more votes than the second runner-up, I guess, or the runner-up to you. And so it sounds like what you were doing was work. It resonated with some folks, apparently. If you if you beat them that badly in this election, so yeah, let's. I mean, maybe it's just maybe it's a, fre a breath of fresh air because you're not hearing it. You know, politics and mere so ugly. I can't hardly pay attention to it because it's. Now, I'll pay attention to it enough to know what I need to know about going on as far as the show's going. But these people are so divided and so angry with each other all the time right now. You know how I get my news, Craig? I, I just can't stand watching the evening news. I get my news by listening to Scott Horton's podcast, um, Peter Schiff, Tom Woods, um, David Knight, Pete Quinones, Just And I figure... If there's something that's not fake and it's not hype and it's something new going on in Afghanistan or something, and if it's from the correct perspective, I'll get it from a podcast. You know, that sounds, and you know, the only other thing is I get a daily email synopsis from some local media outlet and it's all politically correct nonsense about how, oh, the schools are mandating masks and how important it is, or the different industries, healthcare industry is going to mandate vaccines and all that. And I guess if I wasn't in this position where I, I could get blindsided by something like that, like I do 20 media interviews every week, you know, every major national network and the local networks, Fox, NBC, CBS, ABC, PBS, all the local newspapers. 
newspapers. And, and about three quarters of what I do is Spanish interviews. I do across the line. I do Telemundo and Azteca TV. Since I was born and grew up in, in a community that's 95% Hispanic, I speak Spanish. But I try not to listen to any of that, to any of the evening news on TV or anything. I, I really can't stand it. And me and my wife don't want to get depressed and because it just beats you down, you know, and it's so, so much lies too. That's a good point because I, I had Pete on the show and I mentioned that too as well. Like if I, if I get, if I need some news, if I need to learn something, I'm going to listen to folks like Kim or Scott Horton, you know, because to me, I'm good. There, somebody asked me one time, he said, well, how do you know that the podcasts you're listening to aren't lying to you like these mainstream media outlets are? And I said, because their message is consistent. If you listen to the mainstream media, they're, viewpoint could change the next day or five minutes later from what they were talking about. So if it's not consistent, they're lying to me. Right. It's like one week, it's two weeks to flatten the curve. And then the goalposts change. And then it's like, um, kids shouldn't wear a mask. And now it's kids should wear a mask. You know, it's like, you're right. It's not consistent. It keeps changing. And what they do is what Murray Rothbard called court intellectuals, you know, where they produce the intellectual, the pseudo intellectual argument to support whatever the government wants to do. And the government's always going to choose the most authoritarian option. If the government's presented with several options that are supposedly science-based options, they're always going to choose the one that gives them more authority, like where they can have their budget increase, or they can hire more employees, or they can clamp down on the people more. It's, it's never going to be the one that allows you to run your own life. Exactly. All right, so I want to talk about something. I don't know if this is going to be controversial to our listeners or not, but before we started recording, I mentioned this to you. One of the biggest questions we get when we talk about a voluntary society is, well, what about the police? Are we not going to have any kind of security? I think that's the number one question I get when I'm talking to somebody that's not, they don't really understand the philosophy. And so whenever I look at a sheriff, and I've mentioned this before we started recording, to me, that's the closest thing that I can describe as what we're going to see, what we see in a voluntary society. Because if you're the society you're part of, want some kind of police force, some kind of security force, security, we don't, we don't have to call force, just security in itself. To me, that's what the sheriff's department looks like in a way. It's not exactly the same. My understanding of the Constitution and, when, and understanding the sheriff's role, the sheriff is the only police officer that is elected by the people of that county. If you look at like the state police, they're beholden to the governor. The city police are beholden to the mayor, the FBI, the D, all these federal agents are beholden to the federal government. They're not, they were not put into those positions by actual people voting for them. Do you see that as, as your role as a sheriff? Do you see that in, as, as being a similar role or do you see it differently? Maybe I'm just overthinking it. You know, no, no, that's, that's a really good question. You know, things like police departments and sheriff's offices are not market creations. Um, they're funded through theft through taxation. So you don't know if what the security situation would look like. Would everybody handle their own security in a pure market-driven situation? Would there be something like organized security entities? And the only way you would know that is you'd, you know, the market will supply everything that people need. And if there is a demand, like, for example, when they choose how big my sheriff's office is or how big the local police department is, they just pick a number and then they raise people's taxes to the point where it can support that size of a police force, That's that number of detectives, that number of patrol officers. But who's to say that they guessed right? Who's to say that the demand would not have been less or would have not have been more or would not have been there at all where people would all choose to do their own security? So it is an illegitimate creation, any kind of a, you know, a sheriff's office, state police, even though sheriffs, like you said, are the only ones that are elected by the people. But even democracy is not a legitimate concept. If you read Hans Hermann Hoppe's book, Democracy, the God that Failed, you know, democracy does not provide just outcomes. Like the example I like to give is if you had two wolves and a sheep voting over what's for dinner, they have a vote like what's for dinner. Well, that's democracy, but the sheep's always going to lose. But it doesn't mean it's a it's a justified outcome. But, you know, if you want to look at it from the political history perspective, like you're saying, yeah, the from that, if, if you put any 
any sway in politics, and I don't. I have my own reasons for being sheriff here. But if you put any sway in politics, if you look back historically to English common law, the sheriff was the only law enforcement function. And then that was carried through common law into the United States. It wasn't until the late 1800s that a guy named uh, Robert Peel invented the idea of city police departments. It was started with the London police, and then it was replicated with New York City, and then with other things across the United States. These three-letter federal agencies, law enforcement agencies, didn't come into existence until the 1900s, like the ATF and DEA and FBI. There's no provision in the Constitution for things like that. Like the FBI, uh, when it was created, uh, you know, it was not even supposed to be an armed agency. It was just an infor- information-gathering tool to advise the president on intelligence of what's going on internally in the U.S. And you see how all that has turned out, all that has expanded. But if you want to, if you place any credence on political solutions, which I don't, you would say that the sheriff is the only legitimate law enforcement officer for the county. And it's not a patrol function either. It's like people can file complaints against a neighbor, like for a criminal or a civil complaint, like say, I sold you my milk cow but for $500 and you never gave me the $500, Craig, then somebody could file a complaint. It would go to the local court, like in our local courts of first instance are called the superior courts here in the the state of Arizona. And then the sheriff is an officer of the superior court. So he can handle that case as it goes to the court. And if it results in a court order to go seize the cow and give it back to the original owner, because the cow was never paid for, uh, then that would be a civil action. And the court would be, I mean, the sheriff would be an officer of the court. He would be the arms and legs of the court to actually go implement that. Or if a decision is made, arrest this person and put them in jail, then the sheriff would carry out that function. But it wasn't just patrolling around, supposedly looking for crime, which never happens anyway. police and sheriff's deputies, they just take reports after the fact, you know, after crimes are reported. They're not out there catching crimes in in progress. But yeah, to answer your question kind of in a roundabout manner, I don't think there's any legitimacy to any state-run law enforcement, border patrol, sheriff's offices, um, you know, police departments. If you're looking in a voluntary society, the market can, can handle anything and it can scale the size of the response to fit the need of the public. Maybe the public would want a lot more of something you'd call a security force or a police force. Maybe they'd want a lot less. Maybe they'd want nothing. You just kind of have to see how people spend their dollars. If people spend their dollars on iPhones and they love iPhones, you'll get a lot more iPhones. If they don't like iPhones, they think it's a low quality product they don't need, then you'll get less, less iPhones. So what we have now is not a market response. It's just something that was forced into existence. The structures of taxation, which are theft, um, it's not a voluntary thing. Um, you didn't enter a social contract. People like to use that word social contract. That We're in a social contract where we all have to pay our taxes. And then the government gets to decide what kind of a crisis to solve with your taxes. You were never, when you were born or any time during your life, asked to sign a social contract. Do you agree to pay X amount of taxes so that you can get these services? And you said, no, I think so. I think I'll forego your offer to take my taxes and then I'll just provide security myself. It's it's an involuntary thing. So I don't think there's any legitimacy to it. Okay. So let me ask you this then with that, with that viewpoint on, on the sheriff's department, what you said you have your own reasons for for running for uh, sheriff what what are those or just kind of break that down a little bit yeah my reasons are that you have government tyranny about everywhere and you can see it really apparent at the federal level even if somebody's wrapped up in politics i don't see how you could after the last year or two how you could believe that that there's any federal solutions for anything that you know federal officials whether they're democrat or they're republican or this you know oligarchy that runs all the federal agencies and the regulatory structure if there's any solution it has to be a local solution somebody that you can look the guy in the eye and talk to him but for me even though that's true my only reason is if i don't occupy this position there's going to be some guy who's pushing a crisis, who's trying to run my life and trying to run my family's life. I have extended family and relatives in this county. And if I occupy this position, 
I don't have the desire to run anybody's life. I don't have a desire to tell anybody what to do, to put a mask on, to take a shot. And I'm not going to propose any tax increases or anything like that. So I know as long as I occupy this position in my little corner of the world, I can keep a tyrant from occupying the same position. And I don't have grandiose ideas for beyond my county, although I get a lot of invitations to libertarian events and things outside my county and outside my state. And I think I kind of, in some way, I pop the bubble of those people where they kind of want me to say the state is the solution, the government is the solution, sheriffs are the solution. But the really the only reason I'm doing it, it's just very simple, tiny little reason that I live in this county. I have ranch property in this county. I have a bunch of children. I have grandchildren. I have aunts, uncles, cousins. And I, if I occupy this position, then it keeps a less tyrannical person from occupying this position that would want to run my life. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. But I don't, I don't believe in government solutions. Now, before I let you go, when you were on the Tom Woods show, before y'all ended talking to each other, you, you mentioned something about when Fauci was asked about the unintended consequences of the COVID lockdowns, all these mandates, masks, vaccine. Well, this is maybe this is before the vaccines were really becoming a thing. But the reason I want to talk to you about it a little bit is I mentioned before we started recording because it's something that is completely missed in all of this, and it it's something that has affected our family personally. It's, my baby brother passed away last August at the time. This is August 2021. We're recording this. So it's been a little over a year now, but he was scared to death of this virus. He self-isolated, would not leave his apartment. He drank himself to death. Now, in this Tom Woods show, you, you mentioned suicides and overdoses being part of some of these unintended consequences, but nobody's talking about it. And I want more people to start thinking about this because it is, it's affected a lot more people than you know. Yeah, that's true, Craig. And Fauci was asked, I think he was asked by Rand Paul, um, okay, you're only looking at one aspect of this, you know, like let's do isolation, tell people to stay home, mask, social distance, close the gyms, close the theaters and all that. But have you considered that there would be health consequences, emotional consequences, psychological complications, medical complications, people missing their doctor's appointments. Have you considered that there would be that? And Fauci said, I'm sure there would be other consequences, but I haven't measured that or calculated that or taken that into the equation uh, when he gives advice on how the whole country should behave. And I think I mentioned on the Tom Woods podcast that there was an Austrian economist named Henry Hazlitt that wrote a book called Economics in One Lesson. And the one lesson of that book is whenever you're making a decision, you can't just look at one group of people in one period of time and just only look at one factor. You have to look at the totality of the millions of human interactions you can't just say, we're going to take $100 million from taxpayers and build a bridge over here to nowhere. Yeah, that'll benefit the bridge building company, the construction company. They'll make money off of it. But what about all that money that would have been taken from those people? So back to your example of the Fauci thing. Yeah, the unintended consequences he didn't consider, like suicides and the drug overdose deaths are three times in my county, what they were in the year before the COVID nonsense. And it's not just a local problem in my county. This is all across the U.S. You know, the CDC has even said the deaths that are directly, you know, attributable with what they call um, deaths of despair, suicide and drug overdose are outnumbering anything that they directly attribute to COVID. And I know the county just north of us here where Tucson is, Pima County, they just set the record for the most suicide deaths and the most drug overdose in the history of whenever they've been keeping records. But somehow this is left out of the news. Anytime I get some mainstream news reporter talking to me about things like that, you know, I'll mention that. I'll say, because everyone's so isolated and been told you can't go to church, you can't go to work, you can't go to school, you have to stay at home, people are turning to alcohol and they're turning to drugs and they're becoming depressed and they're committing suicide and there's drug overdoses. And, and I will say this stands to reason. Um, I try to slip that in there. 
it probably gets edited out, but I do my best, Craig, to try to get that story out there that there are unintended consequences to all this, making everybody antisocial and making everybody avoid human contact. It's especially on young people. They say the suicides and the overdoses are kind of heavily hitting two segments of society, young people and older, older people, like old people that are isolated and they live by themselves. They're turning to alcohol and they're turning to drugs. So especially those two segments of society. Yeah, but that's, and like you say, nobody talks about that because it it takes the luster off of this fancy story that the government's telling us that everything that's being done is for your good. It's, it's just, it's so sad to me because I, there, I live in Tennessee now and there was a time when all that first started that there was, and it may still be the case because I think you said that the suicide rate was three times higher in, your, in, in Arizona or your county, but there was a time in Tennessee that, there were more suicide deaths than there were COVID deaths. And it all started at the same time. It, it wasn't just happening, but, you know, for no other reason. You, if you, you ought to be able to put two and two together and understand what's going on that, okay, this is happening because people are being isolated. Yeah. And then those COVID deaths they're comparing to aren't even real COVID deaths. Like here in my county, oh, you have people die from leukemia or brain aneurysm or heart attack, and the hospital will get an extra $15,000 under the CARES Act paid through Medicare if they classify that hospital admission as a COVID admission. And they don't even have to do it through a PCR test. They, the CDC allows what they call a diagnostic, a clinical diagnosis. And all they have to do is say, that the patient has one of these eight following symptoms, and the symptoms can be fatigue, cough, sore throat, breathing difficulties, headache. And so they're getting an extra $15,000 by classifying that as a COVID hospitalization. And, and then the only deaths that I've seen around here that were directly attributed to a COVID response was because they put people on ventilators and they got an extra $39,000 from the federal government every time they put somebody on a ventilator. And when they did that, they would medically, uh, said they would put the person into a medically induced coma because the person's natural reaction is to pull that tube out of their throat because you have the gag reflex. So they sedate the person medically, put them in a coma, and then they put them on this uh, ventilator for months. And then the body, the body atrophies, the fluid fills with lungs, you get bacterial pneumonia, and they die from that. I mean, they learned that lesson back in New Jersey that practically all the deaths that they directly attributed to COVID involved a ventilator. So, you know, that's another thing is there's a lot of fraud as to the statistics. Even if you compare suicide overdose deaths to COVID deaths, even those COVID deaths are false statistics. Yeah, and you mentioned the PCR test that came out recently said that, that has never been able to differentiate between the flu and COVID. Yeah, exactly. You know, the flu never went away. And people, I've had people say that it just disappeared. I said, no, it didn't. I said, they're just not, they're just not testing for it. They're not calling anything the flu anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Well, is there anything you want to add before I let you go and let you get back to your day? I really appreciate you coming on. I'd like to have you on again sometime to kind of keep us uh, up to date with what's going on in Arizona as far as the borders are concerned. Or if you have anything else to come up, you know, holler at me and I'll get you back on and we'll talk about it. I, I sure will. Uh, about the only other thing, Craig, is let me just give contact information to your listeners. Uh, I have a real simple email. It's just sheriff david hathaway at gmail.com no weird spelling or anything just sheriff david hathaway at gmail.com and like i said if people want to read more things i've written you could go to lewrockwell.com or the libertarian institute and find quite quite a few things i've written there great great i really appreciate your time and uh spending some time talking to us today this is going to be a, a pretty interesting conversation for our listeners i think i think they're going to get a lot out of this because we're not hearing stuff like this on mainstream, you know, what you're doing. So I really appreciate what you're doing and, and keep up the great work and keep uh, planting some seeds out there, talking about it, keeping people's mind wandering and thinking about what's going on in this world. I think you're doing a great job. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Craig, for having me on. Yes, sir. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, 
please visit thebadroman.com.